0: Paramedic 43, District
1: 1, Engine 51, response, cardiac arrest. Good afternoon, Dr. Rob Dixon with another episode of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. Today we have our Associate Medical Director, Casey Patrick. Hello, everybody. And on the phone remotely from Arkansas, from Little Rock, Arkansas, we have Dr. Tony Supal. Uh, Tony is a great academician and a friend of the podcast and friend of ours, uh, that trained us both at Indiana university when we were going through residency.
0: So he's the blame. Is that what you're saying? He's the blame. Okay. Yeah. So I
1: Google kind of stalked him this morning and I was in awe of uh, all these great academic accomplishments. So I'm going to go over a couple of them. Tony was a chief resident at Carolina's medical center. He joined the IU faculty in 2000. Uh, and then Tony, when did you go to Arkansas? 2013 2013 so in 2013 he ho- took the helm and is the uh, Stanley Reed professor and chair of emergency medicine at the University of Arkansas Medical Sciences uh, so very uh, well published and uh,
0: really I, from from my training I remember Tony as being the the EBM guru the EBM so, guru so that was the impetus for the for the podcast today because I guess as a member of the, uh, the, the Fomeg community, Here at the podcast, uh, we get a lot of questions from our paramedics about how to vet information, where to find accurate information. And as we all know from the ubiquitous Google search, you can find good stuff and you can find bad stuff. And it seems as though the amount of medical information from the literature to research to uh, talking heads out there, it's exploding at an exponential pace. And so you and I, being not research experts, wanted to bring one on and uh, get, get really some tidbits and some pointers on how to best teach our paramedics, to teach our trainees how to go out into the world of, of uh, literature, research, FOMED, and try to find the, how to find the best resources.
1: Yeah. So, Tony, welcome to the podcast.
2: Hey, thanks, guys. Uh, Really appreciate it. Thanks for the warm welcome and introduction. And uh, yeah, I guess I do need to take some responsibility for your training. Um, Although, you know, we had a lot of other faculty there. So anything you guys are screwing up was probably their fault.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. So can to start off, Tony, can we just kind of go over a quick overview with the listeners on how you became interested? I know you have a big background. I didn't go over all your accomplishments in in academic medicine and especially uh, evidence-based medicine kind of developing the foam foam ed um, uh, paradigm can you kind of go over a little bit about how you got interested in this
2: yeah you know um, two two things really when I first got to IU as a young faculty member I had just graduated residency at Carolinas and the evidence-based medicine curriculum there was so far advanced um, compared to what I came from I, I realized, a lot of catching up to do. So I was motivated to catch up to my peers. And then um, if you remember, Raleigh McGrath was the chair back then. He was the course director for evidence-based medicine and biostatistics at IU, a role he really did not want to play. And um, he offered it to me. I had no idea what I was doing, but I figured I'm going to learn this stuff. I may as well teach a course in it, which was probably not the most intelligent thing to do. But it really worked out because um, I ended up directing that course for a little over a decade, extending it across the state of Indiana. And I think some of the things you guys know, I, I became an instructor at um, McMaster University uh, in New York as well at the um, New York Academy of Medicine. And then I, I was also fortunate to become an instructor at um in at oxford uh, at their evidence-based medicine course did that for about a year or two so i've i've learned a lot from those experiences and i still am, i'm kind of in charge of teaching evidence-based medicine to the residents here at uh, uams
0: so as i mentioned you know in the intro there are massive amounts of information seems like more and more every day available uh, emergency medicine related information on the web and as an expert in medical research and assessing uh, the literature, Tony. How do you teach your cl- clinicians to sort through that crazy amount of material? Uh, you know, obviously there are some warning flags, some some red flags that that I like to reference um, when I'm looking at studies uh, to determine whether or not they could be biased or weaker. Uh, can you run through some of those that you you feel are really important when you're teaching your residents?
2: Yeah, sure. So um, one of the some of the quick things to look at is um, conflicts of interest. So is there industry sponsorship for the particular agent or intervention being studied? What you'll find is, surprise, surprise, that industry-sponsored studies always tend to be positive. Uh, They are trying to sell you something after all, and there is a large financial impact for them. And then without being a statistical expert, I think that looking at the types of results or statistics being used in a trial is important not that you have to understand the statistics themselves, but recognize that what were the limitations and where some of the dangers can be in believing things like a relative risk reduction, which quite frankly um, should almost never be used in a clinical trial anymore. It's been a while since I've seen that one. And then the other thing I like to talk about a lot are confidence intervals. If these intervals are wide or they approach, uh, the number zero or one, or they cross zero or one, you have to be real careful with the conclusions because um, the results may be statistically significant, but not clinically meaningful. And then beware of weaker study designs where the authors draw some pretty strong conclusions. Um, Typically, uh, unless it is a high quality prospective trial, like a randomized controlled trial or something like a systematic review, it's difficult to draw a definitive conclusion to change your practice. So um, those are some of the things I look at pretty quickly um, to see if there are any red flags or things I need to worry about when I look at a particular paper.
1: Right, okay. So to not get too deep into the details of study design and kind of research design, but can you talk a little bit about the hierarchy of medical literature and why it's important when you assess the strength or the weakness of a, a paper you may be looking at?
2: Yeah, I, You know, I think, I think it's a really important point <clears throat> and the reason why the hierarchy of evidence is important—it's—it's it's not that you memorize that a systematic review or randomized control trial are at the top of the pyramid um, when it comes to the quality of clinical trials. It's the fact that the the higher level types of evidence tend to be less biased inherently. Okay, so what I mean by that is that there are certain weaknesses. To, t- to trials that are lower down on that pyramid simply because of the study design, okay? And, and there, there are a couple implications to that that I think are really important. If I have a randomized control trial that gives me a result, and we'll just say the result is two, and I have another trial that is not a randomized control trial, let's say it is some form of a retrospective trial, and the result in that trial is also two, okay? The believability of two in the randomized controlled trial is far greater than that in a retrospective trial. As a matter of fact, some people will say that small positive results in retrospective trials are almost meaningless until you have a well-done prospective randomized trial or systematic review. Now, the caveat is just because it's a randomized controlled trial or systematic review doesn't automatically mean it's great because, again, you can have a pretty crappy systematic review or a pretty crappy randomized controlled trial if uh, the methodology is weak, so just because it fits a category doesn't automatically mean that it's great. <clears throat> um, and likewise, you should take with a grain of salt um, a different or weaker study design, even if the results are positive. Now, that doesn't mean that these other types of studies—retrospective analyses, case series, etc.—you should ignore. Be- if they're well done, they do have value, and so. Um, a great example is the discovery of the HIV virus um, actually came about by um, people putting together uh, case series, which would be you know, right towards the bottom of the hierarchy of evidence, but that played a substantial role in medical history and our, our ability to discover and then start treating HIV and AIDS. So um, again, the pyramid or the hierarchy is really important, uh, but you have to understand why that hierarchy is there and um, how that helps you and also how it might also mislead you.
0: So you can't grade me anymore. I'm too old for that. But just for our listeners, I'm going to hit on a couple of vocabulary words that that Tony just mentioned. And we'll link to uh, the pyramid, the hierarchy of uh, medical literature in the show notes. But anytime a study is prospective, uh, we ask our question and we gather our data going forward. If a study is retrospective, We look back at uh, data that already exists and we talk about blinding and a study being double blinded. Uh, The patient is blinded to the treatment along with the investigators, the physicians, the paramedics. Uh, And then randomization is to take your patients and randomly pick them to receive either uh, study treatment or standard treatment. So again, just some, just some background vocabulary for the listeners out there. And again, we'll link the pyramid, the hierarchy of medical literature um, for, you, for, you, for you folks to take a look at um, as you listen along. Now that I'm too old for uh, Tony to uh, give me a shift eval, uh, I'll also give away that I'm old enough to have used and read at least bits and pieces
1: here and there of standard emergency medicine text. Um, and w- I can confirm that, Tony. He still believes in it. I, we are in his office. And where are they? Uh, they're probably collecting dust oh, somewhere. Oh, they are. Mine are actually in my office, doctor. No, I in- still have mine.
0: No, nonetheless, uh, you know, we all have received the newest updated versions of text and looked at chapters and seen things that are immediately, upon unwrapping the, unwrapping the, the cellophane, you know, the, the saran wrap, out of date. Um, with with the built-in lag time inherent in text, and just the, the rapid uh, propagation of online information, phone med type information, Tony, do you feel like texts are still useful? And if not, you know what are some must know sites or sources that you recommend uh, for your trainees?
2: Sure. So I think the assessment of textbooks being outdated by the time they hit your bookshelf um, in your office or in the emergency department. I think I think to a certain degree that is true. <clears throat> I'll tell you though, um, textbooks will always be around. At least I think they will, and they do have some value. I think I think they're great um, for background information. So you forget the mechanism of action of X medication. You know, textbooks are great for that kind of stuff. And I'll tell you, at least on the academic side, I still love going back to textbooks in the emergency department when it comes to teaching procedures and and getting some additional information. Granted, a lot of this stuff you can get online. YouTube, et cetera. But some of these textbooks have some really nice, um, nicely written pieces on things to look out for. And from a a learner standpoint, I like to give folks a couple of different options in terms of where they can get information and kind of what's valid. But in terms of what I think uh, the new century of e-learning is for emergency medicine, quite frankly, for medicine period, there are some really fantastic Online resources that are completely free that I think everyone should take advantage of. And so, um, you guys mentioned kind of Google searching um, a couple times during the, the podcast so far. And I'll tell you the Google for evidence based medicine is tripdatabase.com. That's T R I P database.com. Trip stands for turning research into practice. If you have not been to this website, it is absolutely fantastic. You type in a, a clinical question, it passed evidence across a whole number of different databases and you can quickly filter it into randomized controlled trials, systematic reviews, evidence-based synopses, et cetera. Very user-friendly. You can get a quick bottom line answer to a lot of the clinical questions we come across. And it's, um, it, it really is kind of like Google on steroids for searching the medical literature. So I highly, highly recommend that one. The uh, A couple other resources uh, for the, the crowd listening out there, thesgem.com, that's the S-G-E-M.com. This is a podcast done by an emergency physician out of Canada who has to be a good friend of mine, and I've done a number of these podcasts, and his goal is to get the um, translation of science to bedside from 10 years down to less than a month and um you can go to the website they have uh, podcasts as well as show notes that you can look through and search uh, very helpful and, and and a lot of really great people have done those podcasts in the past another good product is BestBets.org. Uh, this is a uk product that uh has some really nice evidence summaries the bets in in, in the title stands for best evidence topics and so you get um, a really nice summary of clinical questions with a clinical bottom line at the very bottom of, of each one of these. Um, very useful, very easy to peruse. you get you got to mess around with the website a little bit to figure out the best way to search for you, but it's very helpful. Another one is the nnt.com, which is the number needed to treat.com. And again, uh, what's great about this site, um, high level of evidence with a very simple stoplight Um method of rating the the literature. So a red light means it's not helpful, green light means you should do it, and a yellow light means, or amber light means that it's unsure. Uh, another great resource is the Annals of Emergency Medicine Systematic Review Snapshot section. Um, th- this area now contains a library of, gosh, I don't know, 50 to 100 summaries of high-level systematic review snapshots that are only relevant to emergency medicine, and what's great about these is when you pull them up, um, at the very top of the page, there's a one to two sentence um, summary that will tell you everything you need to know about that specific um, topic. So very helpful, and again, all of this stuff is free. The other thing that I use on a regular basis, especially when I'm working a shift, is MDCalc, C-A-L-C. You can go to the website or download their app for free. And this thing's amazing. You can punch in um, pretty much it contains every single clinical decision instrument that we use in emergency medicine with a calculator, of course, to help you decide what you need to do. So I use this thing for um, my PE risk stratification, uh, use it for pneumonia, use it for sepsis you name it, low-risk chest pain. Um, it is a great resource. Everyone has their phone when they're working. Um, it's wonderful. So I, I use it. I insist all my residents download, it, download the app on their phone. I think every practicing clinician should have this, including paramedics, as well as folks working in the emergency department. And then lastly, I'll just say, I think you know we're, we're part of FOMED doing this podcast, but there are a whole host of other FOMED resources like Rebel EM, EM CRIT, and Life in the Fast Lane. But keep in mind... That these, um, these FOMED sources are typically the opinion of a few individuals. And so, you know, their interpretation is usually correct, but you should be at least somewhat skeptical um, of the analysis. So, um, <clears throat> that's a short list of the resources I use on a regular basis and I think are, are really, really good. I suspect you guys probably have a couple others that you could add to that, but um, those would be my recommendations.
1: So you you trained him really well, Tony, because right in the middle of when you were talking about that, he whipped out his phone from across the table here, from across Podcast Central 101, and had to show me that he actually has that app loaded on his phone. I'm not being a very good clinician. You uh, you obviously didn't get enough shifts with me because I do not have it downloaded on my phone. However, I have used quite a few of the resources uh, that you talked about. And I think that that's really important because we're all really, really busy people. And I think I... I, I do two types of learning. So I kind of do my, well, I saw an interesting case, and I'd like to know more about what's new in aortic dissection. And I'll go to look for a podcast or something, something I can consume on the way home or have a listen to or have a read when I get home. And then I have my, I'm right in the middle of, you know, five or six cases uh, in a busy ED, and I just need to know a fact real quick right? So something that's very consumable, very quick, very easy to search. thats going to get me the answer that I want. So if you had to pick your top two from those two things, what would your top two be from the kind of background stuff after a shift versus you're in the patient's house, you need to know an answer right now?
2: Yes. So if I need an answer right away, uh, trip database um, is the one I go to pretty frequently because I can type in a clinical question and a whole bunch of stuff pops up and I could pick the best one and it orders the hits by the level of evidence. So the top three hits are going to be the highest um, level of evidence if, if, I, need, if I need it. Um, and, and then my second choice really is a little bit of a cheat because, um, you know, I, I've used a lot of these resources to the point where I kind of know what's already in them. And so, um, for example, the Annals of Emergency Medicine Snapshot Series, man, that, you know, it, it, it's a great resource. I'll probably list that as my number two, uh, simply because it's um, when you go online, it's broken down by organ systems. So you can quickly peruse what's available. And it, if, if there's a hit, it's going to have the answer for you. Um, and then a close maybe 2B would be the NNT.com nnt.com is great um it, it it's not um it's it's not as expansive as some of these other sources but the quality of the information is really high and it's easy to find and and has such an innovative way to let you know that um the intervention is whether or not it's helpful or not um is is, is pretty cool
0: yeah I, just to echo i um, uh, for our medics mcsd medics listening out there If you go back and search our slide decks, I think you'll probably find that also uh, some of those Tony mentioned are are my favorites as well. Yeah, you'll see if you look where
1: they're they're referenced. Absolutely. I've used most of those.
0: Huge fan of Rebel EM, huge fan of Life in the Fast Lane. I think uh, good stuff there. And You'll find that a lot of the the folks overlap as well. Um, I like uh, Core EM as well, which has got overlap with some of the folks that Tony's already mentioned. The other one I would throw out there that I think is a free app that's worth, again, it's not super – in-depth or detail, but you can get some really quick tox information is the American College of Emergency Physicians uh, tox app. I think it's it's pretty useful. You can search antidote or you can search toxin and get some pretty good uh, baseline information from there worth keeping on your phone.
1: Yeah, it's kind of interesting. You know, when you were talking about Tony, that you have to be careful with some of the medical blogs, Um, Life in the Fast Lane, Rebel EM being a couple of the ones that I use quite a bit. I just read a piece that came over my Twitter feed on how they they did a little meta-analysis on how active these medical blogs were. And so they looked at how many of them were out there um, total that they could find, which is in the hundreds, like 500 different type medical blogs. And then what they did is they said, okay, how many of those have had – you know, keep up to date and their surrogate marker they used for that was, did they have a post, you know, six times in the last year? So out of 12 months, did they have six postings on it? And I was shocked to see how many of those are, there's lots of blogs out there, but a lot of that stuff has not been updated in years. There's very few that update that material frequently. And these things have been around. I think the first one was uh, the Grunt Doc blog, It's like one of the oldest ones out there.
0: Yeah, and I believe, I mean, just to go back to condensation, I think some of that is the the bigger, more reputable uh, sites and organizations tend to pick up the smaller, you know, the smaller folks. And I think that's probably a result of of consolidation and just people moving on. I mean, life goes on, you you grow, you move, you get older. Um, Proud of the podcast at this point, but I'm not sure in five years or 10 years that we'll still be sitting here, hopefully. Uh, but you know, things change. So I think that would probably be a pretty big red flag to folks if they see, you know, the last post was 2009, probably need to move on to the next, to the next site. Moving along with time here, I think it's a a good point to, to wrap up. And I really saved what to me is the key question for last for Tony. Um, you know, we've hit on study designs. We'll link up the hierarchy of medical literature, some of the red flags, conflict of interest, sensational headlines, you know, statistical manipulation, uh, talked about some sites, uh, free sites where, where uh, Tony uses, um, recommends, and we'll, we'll link all those as well. But really the million dollar question is you've got this humongous flow. It's a, you know, waterfall of information hitting us in the face every day as clinicians. How do we make the final call on the importance of a study and whether or not we incorporate that study into our medical practice because to be honest, if we're incorporating every Twitter study that we see, every blog study that we see, you'd be I out mean, there doing all I mean, kinds you're of crazy in, stuff. And you're going in <laughs> circles, right? I mean, because it's 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 a it's a constant flow. So how do you, Tony, take all this information and decide when it's time to change your practice? What are the things that 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 push you over that edge?
2: Yeah, so a uh, cu- couple of things I would say. The first is you know to become a critical appraisal ninja. You got to be an expert um, to a certain degree, and that doesn't. And, and I say that not that you have to be um, someone that teaches courses and does all these kinds of things, but you need to, you know, to be a lifelong learner. I think you really do need to have some working understanding of critical appraisal, so that you can also uh, be skeptical as well as accepting of what the medical literature poses. Um, And a lot of this is really just using your common sense. You know, if you get, if the gut instinct is, man, that just doesn't sound right, then it's probably not right. And never forget that you have friends. So your colleagues, the people you work with, um, others in the community, you know, what are they doing and how they're responding to this? Because, you know, you don't want to be someone that's a laggard and you're you're practicing um, kind of in an antiquated manner, but you also don't want to be the person that's jumping on every new thing just because. Because that's going to burn you. There are plenty of examples where you know the, the newest, hottest thing to do turns out probably wasn't the best thing to do. So having a healthy sense of skepticism, uh, developing your own critical appraisal skills, and then uh, using common sense and your friends and the things that your community uh, do, I think are really important in terms of how and when you incorporate new evidence into your practice. I
0: think that uh, as we age, as practitioners too, we start to have those collection of of treatments and therapies that uh, were the were the next big thing that went by the wayside. And I think some of it is also just experience with those and, and stepping in those potholes. Uh, Zygris, Natricor, uh, you, you name it. <laughs> the way it. we yeah. approach
1: emergency airways. Yeah, the way we approach airways yeah. for sure.
0: Yeah. So I think that's a good good point to to wrap us up. I'd really like to thank tony for joining us today great great insight and input for our listeners out there we'll link all of all of the information we discussed so so all of you can take a look at it thanks for uh, kevin crocker for manning the board for us today as always if you have questions or concerns or bones to pick please email us at the podcast email and that wraps us up for another edition of the mchd paramedic podcast we'll talk to everyone again soon
2: thanks